Are you ready to perform at your highest potential? Welcome to the Performance Matters Podcast from GP Strategies. In each episode, we'll interview industry experts, exploring best practices and innovative insights to help you and your organization improve performance. Hello and welcome to the podcast. My guest today is Keith Keating, Senior Director of Global Learning Strategies at GP Strategies. Keith, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jeremy. It's great to be back. You're a regular guest. You've been on the podcast a bunch of times. Do you have any idea how many times at this point? Uh, you know, I don't even keep count at this point. It's just uh, always, always look forward to talking with you. Yeah, likewise. So, all right, well, let's get into it. So given what we've been through during the pandemic and what we've learned about the nature of work and about workers, I think a lot of people are thinking and talking a lot about the future workforce and people can't see, obviously, because this is only audio, but I'm putting scare quotes around future workforce because it's kind of a broad term. So let's try and narrow it down a little bit. What's a useful way to define the phrase future workforce? There's a couple of approaches that come to mind. So first is that businesses are trying to look at how technology and globalization will impact the future. And so the phrase future workforce is really about a comprehensive approach that aims to create a productive and adaptive workforce so that we can meet those future needs of the organizations. And so from from their perspective, they're looking at how will they operate and what do they need from their talent to be successful? So some even say that the future workplace is about digital technology and trying to reinvent that employee experience and redesigning the organizations to be more agile. For me, I tend to think of it more as future workforces about preparing the talent of today for tomorrow. So really it's about putting those human skills back at the heart of the competitiveness in our organizations, but also in the growth and the age of intelligent technology. Okay. And, you know, we've been talking about that stuff on this podcast for a while now, well before COVID, but COVID obviously has kind of brought some of these issues to the forefront in a way that is maybe even more intense nowadays. And we're all aware that the pandemic brought on a massive shift of many more people working from home as opposed to in the office. So let's focus right there because that's top of mind for so many people. How important do you think the working from home phenomenon has been and will continue to be in shaping the future workforce? You know, COVID has been an accelerator. So everything that has happened from an organization or working standpoint in the last year or so, we've been talking about for a long time. It's just that it pushed that timeline forward probably about eight or nine years, and it significantly compressed it. So I think in terms of your question about how does the remote work affect the future workplace? It creates more opportunities in a number of ways. So one would be about the diverse workforce. We now have greater access to talent in the business, but then additionally, the workers also have more opportunity to 
have exposure to organizations around the world. It's no longer about where you're living. It's about the skill set that you have. It's about the value that you can bring to the organization. So in that aspect, we're not tied to a physical location anymore to do your job. And we're already seeing that there's a shift right now in where people are living. Some are referring to it as reverse urbanization, as people start to move out of the large cities to help get a reduction in rent or real estate or even just have more space. So I think along with that, it's given us an improved work-life balance, or at least it has the potential to give an improved work-life balance. I think that one of the challenges right now is uh, we're not putting enough emphasis on that work-life balance. People seem to feel that now that they're able to work remotely, it means that they have to be sitting in that chair for eight or nine hours a day, and they're not realizing that um, there is a different uh, approach, there's a different opportunity for being a remote worker. And so we do need to put more emphasis on that work-life balance aspect, but that opportunity is is there. So really, remote work, it, it is beginning to feel a little bit more natural now because as a remote worker myself, I feel like I have more support. I have more technology support. I have more managerial support because more of us are doing it. And it's less... Uh, you're less secretive about it. We can talk about it now. So we've got those tools that are available for us. And I think in general, we're being set up for a greater opportunity for success. So all of that sounds pretty good, right? So like you said, lots of opportunities, but also, and I think you were starting to get at this, some significant challenges. I mean, like anytime you speed something up eight years or eight to 10 years, that's a massive Mm -hmm. speed up, right? With all kinds of... Uh, with with all kinds of potential pitfalls. So like I was reading an article just the other day, I think Microsoft had done a study about remote work and found a lot of opportunities, but also some really significant challenges specifically around people's uh, schedules just being disrupted and ending Mm -hmm. up, you know, getting messages, having to respond to emails late at night, you know, that sort of thing, kind of when you're always on, which speaks to what you were saying about the work-life balance. So, I mean, say a little bit more about that. Certainly lots of opportunities in, in all kinds of positive ways, but what should we be aware of in order to avoid some of those pitfalls that are certainly lurking out there? I think the discussing where we are. So at a couple of organizations I work with, we, like everyone else, went virtual overnight. And the idea was this is going to be six months. And then six months turned into nine months. And nine months turned into 12 months. And I don't know that a lot of companies provided the support needed for success because the idea was this is short term. Now we're seeing that this isn't short term. Organizations are really starting to accept it. And so we need to put more emphasis on how do we support our teams? What does remote management look like? How do you establish and facilitate teamwork? Uh, engagement in remote meetings, to your point about answering emails 24 hours a day, how do you set up those boundaries? Because that's, you know, the boundaries are are a challenging aspect that people have right now that, again, they feel like because I'm working at home, I need to be available 24 hours a day. And that's not the case. So you've got to be able to set up those boundaries. So being able to have that discussion with your leadership to understand what your needs are, what the organization's needs are, and making sure that the two are meeting. 
Okay. So that sounds like an important point, too, that this isn't solely the responsibility of leadership and management or solely the responsibility of employees. It really needs to be a collaboration to figure this out together. Absolutely. It's, it's again, what you need, what the organization needs, and how you can balance the two. Okay. So open communication is going to be super important. Absolutely. Okay. So in what other ways has the pandemic influenced the future of work in your view? I'd like to think that it's helped us recognize our ability as humans to be agile and adaptable. Not that maybe we didn't know that already, but the the way, the speed and the way and the manner in which everyone has reacted or many people have, have reacted and responded, it's really a beautiful example of our resiliency. But specifically, uh, besides remote work, the business models have shifted. So the digital transformation has significantly been accelerated. In fact, McKinsey estimates that we've seen e-commerce grow over the last 12 to 13 months, two to five times faster than before 2020. We've seen automation has had a significant increase uh, and COVID has really propelled faster automation and AI. And we've been talking about that a lot in, in future workforce, but we've really seen that change happen as we've needed to um, really separate humans from each other right now. And so we need to get that work done. And, and where do we turn to? We turn to automation and, and technology and AI. So a lot of companies have deployed AI in warehouses, we've seen it in grocery stores, uh, call centers, manufacturing plants, I mean, the Amazon, the Targets, the Walmarts, to reduce that workplace density and to help cope with those surges in demand that we've seen in e-commerce. We've also seen a need and, and some positive reaction in terms of employee well-being, but I think that there's more there. There's a greater need for looking at the empathy for our talent and our workforce. And, and I, I heard a lot of chatter, you know, at CEO needing to be rephrased to chief empathy officer, which I think is still very important. So we've started to see more of a, of a recognition around that employee well-being, but I think that we've got a lot more to go. So within our labor markets, we've seen a significant change there. So McKinsey estimates that COVID has forced an additional 25% of the workforce to switch careers. So it could either have been from the millions of people who have been displaced, or it could just be from the business changing and adapting as a result of COVID. So given that we've got this, this concentration of our workforce changing, what we're also seeing is there is an increase in high-wage occupations, but we're also seeing a significant decrease right now in low-wage occupations. And so that's also forcing that shift in our labor market. So I think the, the, the answer to your question is we, there's a lot of different things that are, that are happening from recognition of us and our agility to business models shifting, e-commerce, faster adoption of AI and automation, and then our labor markets shifting. Yeah. I mean, th there's so much more we could talk about, right? I mean, supply chain, we could do a whole discussion just on that and all sorts of assumptions about supply chains that have been um, upended. And, you know, even the, the vaccine, the creation of the vaccines and the rollouts, to my mind, the conventional wisdom before COVID was creating a vaccine that actually is going to work can take up to a decade and usually mm -hmm. does. And therefore, there was a lot of pessimism about 
you know, this is going to take years before we have a working vaccine. It ended up taking about a year. And now we have the, you know, and that seemed to be just hard. That was a pretty hard assumption, right, based on what we know. And yet that was wrong, as it turns out. You know, maybe it's peculiar to these particular vaccines, although I doubt it. So that makes me think there are probably a lot of other assumptions about timetables, what we think we can and can't do, that maybe we're going to revisit in all kinds of areas. Yeah, well, look at just the remote work discussion. Yeah. Uh, you know, we've been talking about it for a long time. And in, in organizations, when we had the conversation, you would hear things like, well, that can't work, or we'd need to have a pilot of this, and we've got to have IT involved, and our servers have to be fixed, and there's too many security issues. And, you know, it was all the reasons why it could not happen. And then, of course, something forces us to shift, and we're able to adapt to it. And so I think it's just looking at our adaptability, all of the businesses that were able to shift. I mean, GM went from creating vehicles to creating PPE gears. We had, uh, there's just a number of stories, you know, McDonald's delivering lunches to children using their uh, manufacturing and their supply chain. And to your point, you know, supply chain was really a beautiful outcome of this and seeing how adaptable and how we can pivot what we're doing to meet the needs of each other. Mm -hmm. So now, of course, we're all very focused on the pandemic. But as we mentioned up top, we've been talking about the future workforce for a while now. Mm -hmm. So what are some other things that we need to keep in mind alongside the pandemic, but not necessarily driven by it or exclusively by it that are shaping the future workforce right now? I think there's five key areas. We have the demographic shift. So that's our changing size of our population, our distribution, where our population is located, our age and profile of our working population. You know, the, the, uh, we're, we're starting a little bit younger, but we're also working later in life. We've got significant rapid urbanization. So we've got populations that are shifting either to cities, uh, especially in third world countries. And we've got the reverse happening in first world countries where it, the reverse urbanization, people are moving out of cities. Then we've got the global economic power shifts. Those are the power shifting between developed and developing countries. We've got robotics, automation, technology. As we've seen that in the pandemic, we've seen it before the pandemic. It's going to continue to increase as technology is working beside us, with us, that helps to augment our skills and the way that we work. And I think the last one is education. And it's a, it's a loaded descriptor, but it could be either the lack of education in some places or the need that we have for disrupting our education system, this brick and mortar, archaic system, and the accumulated debt that we're seeing, especially in the U.S. as a result of the for-profit education system. So I think those are the five factors that we have that are helping to shape the future workforce. Okay, great. And again, we could do a whole series of podcasts on each one of those. On each one of those. On each one of those factors. And, you know, as a parent with two college age kids, I, I think about the education piece a lot. You know, even if it's not just for not just for profit colleges, I mean, any kind of college these days, mm -hmm. you're paying a lot of money. And I think a lot of people are starting to think about well, what, what, where, what is the return on investment there? And how does that help you get ahead in the world, Think, bringing it back to the future workforce, right? Let's not go down that rabbit hole because that's like a whole <laughs> other discussion. But well, let's let's take it to uh, to L&D, the world of L&D. 
how, in your opinion, how well are workers being prepared right now for the future workforce that you're describing? On a scale of one to 10, I'd say that today we're about a 4.5. So we've got a lot of work that we could be doing, uh, especially in terms of future skills. And I'm not even personally a fan of the phrase of future skills, because that sounds like something that's in the future. It's tomorrow. We don't need to be focusing on it. But the reality is when we, everything that we talk about in terms of future workforce are things we need to be focusing on today. And so those are things like our human skills, our human mindsets, like empathy, creativity, problem solving. You know, one of the things, the challenge is not to go down the path of education, but when we think about problem solving is that we need to be taught that we don't need to know the answer to the problem, uh, like evolving from memorization. We need to learn how to think critically and how to solve the problem that's in front of us. You know, we, uh, agility, adaptability, social intelligence, resilience, change management, growth mindset. These are all the skills that we need to be focusing on. Yeah. What role does L&D need to play? And I, before you answer that, I mean, I, in a way it might seem obvious, right? Like, well, L&D has a central role because who else is going to teach the skills that you're going mm -hmm. to need, the skills around creativity and so on that you just described. But what makes that a more interesting question for me is that there are so many resources out there that the individual employee can already go to without sort of waiting for L&D to, you know, hand down a learning module. For example, and this example always comes up on this podcast and elsewhere, you need to figure something out, whether it's at work or just in your life, you go to YouTube. I do that all the time, right? Everybody does. So what does that mean? Does that mean that... L&D is maybe less central or crucial than it used to be in terms of teaching these skills or that it's actually more important than ever for various reasons. What do you think? I think it's a combination. So um, th this is a question that often gets asked, whose responsibility is it? Yeah. And I think that there is responsibility in multiple places. Uh, there's the public sector. Uh, so our education systems, there's the private sector, our organizations, there's the government sector, and then there's ourselves. And we have to, we as talent, we as humans have to take some accountability and responsibility here. Now, going back to the specific question about L&D, I think that we've got to evolve from being learning providers to learning enablers. Our goal is to create a system, an infrastructure to create places for our talent to go to learn. And so when I think about how, how do we do that? What are some of the first questions that we need to be asking? It's as, as an L&D professional, do I know the skill gaps that exist today within my business unit or organization? That's the first question we need to be asking. If you don't know what those skill gaps are today, then that is your first step. You've got to figure out where you where are you right now, because we can't focus on the future skills of tomorrow. If we don't know where we are today or those gaps that exist. So after we figured out, do we know where we are today, what gaps exist? The next question is, do I know what skill gaps may exist in the next three years? That could be looking at uh, industry research, World Economic Forum, McKinsey Global Institute. It could be talking to your business partners. It could be looking at your competitors. Just looking at what's the future landscape look like in the next couple of years. More research, more sharing of best practices, looking inside your industry and outside of your industry. And it, it 
feels sometimes very fragmented. And so for us as L&D, we need to be better connected. We need to be better aligned with our business partners. We need to be better aligned with the industry of L&D, with also our, our industry of organization. And we need to be able to respond quicker to our learner needs. Uh, and that, that may mean moving away from e-learning, for example, you know, which could could take maybe two months to create. Uh, one quick example is in the middle of the pandemic, I was talking to some uh, CLOs of hospitals and asking, what can we do as an industry to help? And they said, you know, thank you. You're giving us content, but the issue is you're giving us content that requires people to log into a computer and take training. We don't have time to take off our PPE gear. We don't have time to be logging into anything. If you want to reach us today, make a podcast like mm. we're doing here. They can put their earbuds in. They can continue to save lives without having to take their gear off while they're learning. So we need to be thinking about learner-centric. What are the situations that our learners are in and how can we meet them where they are, putting that learning in that, that place of need? Okay, so it sounds like a really important first step. And this is getting on to my next question, which, which, which was going to be for listeners in L&D who are saying, yeah, we're at that, we're 4.5, maybe even lower. We need to get with the program here. The question was going to be, what's the first thing you should do? And I, I think you just answered it, right? That you need to educate yourself about what are our learners dealing with? What, just what formats do they want learning in? What's going to most enable them to, to learn as opposed to the old model of sit tight, we're going to unveil our latest awesome module that you need to log into the web page for. Yes, but I would, I would add on, I would build onto that and say that the, the first thing besides being learner centric, I think our, all of our strategies should be about creating lifelong learners. Okay. And we have to help. It starts with ourselves. So right now, you know, if you listeners don't have that mindset of being a lifelong learner, that's the first thing that we need to do individually is accept that. Never stop learning. No matter what stage of your career that you're in, we need to be creating lifelong learners. And, and it starts with us. On top of that, I think L&D needs to evolve from, as I mentioned, not being learning providers, but being learning enablers mm -hmm. so that we are empowering, encouraging and enabling learners to take control over their future. And it goes back to that, my previous statement about whose responsibility is it? Although I think it's there's a shared responsibility at the end of the day. It's up to me. I'm not expecting that my company is responsible for giving me the skills that I need. I need to have some ownership and accountability there. For us in learning and development, what I want for us is our talent should be agile, adaptable, and ready to fill the next organizational gap, whatever it is. And I think that's one of the, the gaps that I see in the industry is that we, we seem to all be trying to close some sort of gap that we're, we're saying that exists, but we don't truly know. We don't know what's going to happen in five years. Three years ago, we had no idea that COVID was going to be here. So how do we help prepare our talent for those types of disruptions? We help them be agile, adaptable, so that they can solve those problems, whatever it is. And I would say that, lastly, a practical suggestion that I want to share is that we don't want to wait for somebody else to start this conversation about the future of work. And so often people will say, well, what can I do in L&D? Uh, you know, I don't have a voice. And I personally don't believe that 
we stop there. If you don't have a seat at the table, then make your own table. One practical uh, practical approach that you can take is start a skills advisory committee. Hmm. And it, you know, it sounds fancy and uh, maybe challenging, but it's not. A skills advisory committee can consist of you, maybe someone from the business, someone from HR, maybe even a client, uh, maybe just an employee, and you meet on a reoccurring basis. It could be once a quarter, once every six months, and you have a structured and facilitated conversation about the skills gap within your organization. You maybe bring in research, and that's where we, that's, that's where I believe our power is, is we need to be that linchpin about what's happening in the industry, what's happening in that research. Don't wait for somebody else to talk about the skills gaps or look at McKinsey or look at the World Economic Forum. As learning development professionals, it's our responsibility to be uh, digesting that content Mm -hmm. and sharing that. And so the Skills Advisory Committee, it's just a place for you to keep this conversation going. Have this forward-thinking, forward-looking discussion around what's happening in our business what's happening in the industry, what's happening with our competitors, and then mapping that against what this industry research is saying to help you figure out where those gaps are. Because there's a lot of uncertainty, and, and I'll, I'll finish with this. Yeah. We, uh, one thing I hear is, uh, whether it be webinars or podcasts, they all talk about future-proofing. The, the reality is we cannot future-proof anything. We cannot future-proof our talent or our business. But what we can do is future-ready and future-prepare. And so by helping our talent be lifelong learners, by having these types of conversations ongoing with our business, uh, with, with the Skills Advisory Committee, we're able to help prepare and ready our talent for whatever gaps, whatever challenges our business may face. Yeah, that's great. I mean, I would think if we've learned anything from COVID, it's that we don't know what's going to happen. And all we know is that things will happen. We will be caught Mm -hmm. off guard and by surprise. How well are we going to respond? Absolutely. And that's our job as as L&D professionals is to help our talent be ready to, to navigate those ambiguous waters because they are ambiguous and they will probably always be ambiguous. And so recognizing that and preparing for that is is one of the best gifts I think that we can hope to achieve with our talent. Love it. Well, Keith, well said. Always a pleasure speaking with you. Thanks so much for a great conversation. Absolutely. Thank you, Jeremy. The Performance Matters podcast is brought to you by GP Strategies. Together, we can create a world where business excellence makes possibilities achievable. You can subscribe to the show anywhere you get podcasts and listen on our website at gpstrategies.com slash podcasts.